You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, listen, it is a, it's such a great, um, I just can't believe I get to be here. I love uh, being here. You guys have uh, in Mark and Marla, um, probably the greatest uh, couple that I've ever known to, to lead a church. I tell folks all the time, man, if I, um, the, the guy who is my pastor, uh, so many days and, and weeks and months and seasons is Mark Kirkendall. And the guy that I have um, laid on his couch and said, man, help me with, with, my, with my kids and uh, my marriage. And so Mark has been uh, an incredible uh, gift to me, and the, the opportunity that we've had um, all these years to work together. And I'm just telling you, you guys are, and you know it, you know how great Mark is. And uh, so thanks for letting me be here in his stead today. Um, and we, what we're doing is we are on the third week, the final week of a marriage series. We're doing marriage and parenting, three weeks on marriage. Then we'll do three weeks on parenting, and this is the third week on in the marriage series, sort of the, the last week. And so I want to begin uh, this morning, uh, a fitting way, the only way I really know how, is uh, to tell you about a, a brand new store that's just opened up in New York City that sells husbands, okay? So um, it, cleverly... Uh, called, the, the, the name of the store is the husband store. And so uh, when a woman goes to choose a husband, they got to follow the directions at the entrance. And here, here are what the directions are at the entrance. It says this, you may visit this store only once. There are six floors and the value of the products increase as you ascend the flights. You, you may choose from any item from a particular floor, or you may choose to go up to the next floor. But you cannot go back down except to exit the building. So, woman goes into the husband's store to find a husband. On the first floor, the sign reads this. Floor one, these men have jobs. All right, next floor, floor two, sign reads. Floor two, these men have jobs and love kids. Floor three, sign reads. Floor three. These men have jobs, love kids, and are extremely good-looking. She, uh, she likes that floor, but feels compelled to move on. She goes to the fourth floor. The sign reads this, floor four. These men have jobs, love kids, and are, are drop-dead good-looking and help with housework. Mercy. But she goes on to the fifth floor. Fifth, fifth floor sign reads this, floor five. These men have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead gorgeous, help with housework, and have a strong romantic streak. She is so tempted to stay. But she goes on to the sixth floor. When she gets to the sixth floor, here's what the sign reads, floor six. Your visitor, 31,456,012 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely as proof that women are impossible to please. Thank you for shopping at the husband's store. Paul Keel, just to avoid gender bias, let me tell you about the wife's store, all right? 
wife's store, right across the street from the husband's store, walk in, same rules apply, same instructions. Man goes, first floor, reads, floor one. Um, these wives, let me look around here. These wives love sex. Sorry, you can explain it on the way home to you, kids. <laughs> Second floor, these wives love sex and have money. Floors three through six have never been visited. <laughs> oh, you just pray and go home, right? No, we, um, it, uh, I introduce it that way. We, several, oh gosh, it's been a couple of months ago now. We um, were praying about what to do after the series in First Peter. And so and Mark may have told you this, or Eric may have told you this last week, but um, the, we, we got together, had all the pastors and wives, and, and we all sat around a living room together, and we talked about, man, what, what would we want to say from God's Word? What would He lead us to say as we talk about marriage? Um, it is... Um, you know, it's under fire. The statistics of marriage continue to to get worse. It it um, it's being redefined in all kinds of ways. So, marriage. What would we say? Well, the first week, Mark, if you were here, Mark introduced the difference in a marriage between a marriage clothed in grace and a marriage clothed in the law, and he talked about forgiveness and. How, poor, how important it was to forgive from a posture of grace. And then last week, Eric was here, and he talked about um, what it means to fight for each other's faith in marriage. We looked at the book of Jude together. This week, what I want to do is I want to take, take us to the very beginning of the Bible, and I want to look at God's design for marriage. And then after we look at God's design for marriage, what I want to do is take an honest look at the disappointments in marriage, the, the disappointments that we all struggle with. And so to do that, I want to begin, we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 2. That's where I'm going to be this morning. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25, and then I'll, we'll go back through and, and uh, discuss, uh, discuss them. Here's how it goes, Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit, found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Well, the three things I want to 
highlight in this passage. There's lots that we could talk about. But the first thing is I want you to see is that marriage is God's idea. So in verse 18 there, it says that I will make. God says, I will make. Marriage is God's idea. He established it, and therefore, it's under his authority. He he designed it, and therefore, he has a, a purpose that he intends for marriage. So our interest should be in understanding what God's intentions are, what God's purposes are. And so there's a way to do marriage that aligns with God's intentions, and there's also marriage that is out of alignment. You can think about it on your car. You, you get new tires, you got to get the car aligned, or you'll damage the, the tires. The, the car will shake and vibrate. It won't, it won't just go in a, in a straight direction. You, you've got to be aligned with God's purpose for marriage. In fact, listen to this. The Bible begins with a wedding in Adam and Eve. The Bible ends in a wedding with Christ and the church. You know, what we see here is that everything is made out of the ground, except for the woman. She is made from man. And Genesis is the only ancient Near Eastern creation account. So there are several. It's the only creation account that has a separate accounting, a separate description of the creation of woman. Marriage is God's idea. Secondly, I want you to see is that marriage was the answer to man's problem. said this in in verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone. And then in verse 20, he's going to say there was not a helper fit for him. So in Genesis, what you see is you open up Genesis and you see that there is void and there is chaos. The the, the earth is without form and and it's void and the sky needs luminaries, and the sea needs fish, and the land needs vegetation and inhabitants, and and man needs woman. Literally, the text is saying, he is not good. Everything in creation has been declared good, except in this moment, in Genesis 2, 18, God literally says, he is not good. Why is he not good? And the, the, the word is that he's alone. It means He's by himself. It means he's, there's only a portion. It means he's only half of what he's supposed to be. You see, the problem is that he's only half a man. He's, he's half the image of God that he was created to be. And he'll be frustrated to do what it is that he was designed to do, namely to, to work and keep creation, to have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, because full life, Life to the fullest is found in community. And ground zero for community is marriage. And what's so great is that when you open up the New Testament, in the New Testament you find that Paul, he, he commends, he, he exalts, he, 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 he praises singleness. Well, in the first century, singleness was not a virtue. It wasn't something to be valued. And yet, in the church, in Christ one can find the fullness of life even as one who is single because they can be united to the church. There's a fulfillment that can be found in in covenant with the church. That's why in the same way, couples can't make it alone without the church. You can't make it alone without other couples. 
the Adam was only half of what he was created to be. He had his work, but he didn't have anybody else. And then the text says a helper fit for him, meaning a, a counterpart, the other half. You, know, you might think, well, what's, what's most like half of a moon? Well, the, the other half of the moon. Well, what's most like man? Woman. Which is why I would say for just a second, mothers of sons, mothers of sons see only half a man. It's the half that they can mother. You know, um, that's why so many men will resent a woman that wants to mother them. And guys, I would say this to you, that, that to the degree that you come home and, and you relate to your wife in such a way that you, you need her or want her to mother you, you're not honoring her as your wife. See, a man and a woman, in their, in their differences, they become one, they become whole. Women, you complete your husband as a wife, not as a mother. Men, your wives complete you as a wife, not as a mother. See, in verse 19, um, what we see is that while Adam was alone, he, he did have dominion. In verse 19, it says look, there's dominion, there's authority, there's responsibility given to the man. He's, he's exercising it. He's naming all the animals. He's, he's delegated that by God in freedom. I mean, what could be more fulfilling? Adam is the CEO of creation. But that is not enough. It's not the solution. Enrichment is not the solution. Education is not the solution. You, you having more experiences in, in, in your life is not the solution, or more money in the bank, or more status at work. None of those things are the solution to completing you. Completion is the solution, and that's only found in community. Well, in verse 20, where um, the man had given names to all the livestock, but there was not found a helper fit for him, uh, it may have been to, to arouse Adam's need, to, to cultivate or create the need in him. The word uh, fit, it, helper, uh, humans cannot fulfill their design except in relationship. They, they've got to be a part of something beyond themselves. Well, the third thing I want you to see is that not only is marriage God's idea, and that not only is marriage the solution to the problem, but I want you to see that marriage is for God. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and then while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. God caused a deep sleep. It's... Um, the, the word in the Hebrew, it, it literally means a death-like sleep. Adam is put to sleep by God, and then he wakes up in, he, he wakes up, and the world is completely different for him. Several chapters later in Genesis, God's going to do the same thing with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, he's going to put Abraham 
to sleep. He's going to cause a deep sleep to come upon Abraham. And while Abraham's asleep, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham and with the nation of Israel. And Abraham is going to wake up and the world is going to be different. This word sleep, it's the same word that Jesus uses about Lazarus in the New Testament. When he talks about Lazarus' death, he calls him a sleep, a death-like sleep. And then I want you to see that even here in Genesis chapter 2, even before we get to Genesis chapter 3, that we have a picture of what marriage is to point us to. And can you think about somebody else who went into death as his side opened up and then wakes up in covenant with a bride? This even here in Genesis chapter 2 is the echoes of or give us the picture of Jesus going to the cross, dying for his bride, the church, and is resurrected into covenant with them. See, in the very first message, in the very first marriage, we're given echoes of the great marriage to come. Every marriage is meant to echo, kind of, kind of like a sonar that, that bounces off of something. Every, every marriage is meant to echo the great marriage to come. But see, God could have divide, designed life under the sun in, in any way that he chose to, infinite possibilities before him. But marriage is specific, and it's intentional, it's, it's unique, it's intimate. It's designed by God from the very beginning to give us an experience and a language with which to know him and to know his love for us. The intimacy and love and sacrifice and joy, all the things that make marriage so wonderful. It's created by God and created for God so that we can know him. See, the glory of God is meant to be displayed in marriage. One person has said this, that a, that a woman's called to live in a voluntary a submissive, a supportive way towards her husband, yet the man is called to die in a sacrificially loving way for his wife. I mean, notice the order in the text. Desire was aroused in Adam by showing him his need. But his love is awakened through his sacrifice. See, God took Adam apart and put him back together. Guys, I'll tell you, um, that's what marriage is going to feel like it's doing to you. It's going to feel like it's taking you apart and putting you back together. Well, in verse 22, we see that, that God brings the woman to the man like a father to the bride. And Adam doesn't take a wife, he receives a wife. The best things are not our work, they're God's work. Chuck Swindoll tells this great story. He was... Um, uh, a woman had written him and, and told him about what she'd done. He was preaching a marriage series, so he, he relates the story to the congregation. And, and the story was that she had hung a pair of trousers in her room, uh, and then every day she prayed that God would fill them. Okay? Um, this particular Sunday, there was a teenage boy who was attending church, uh, and he was there without his parents. Here's Swindoll tell the story. Later that week, the, the mom. Uh, calls Swindoll on the phone and says, what in the world did you preach on Sunday? And he said, well, why do you ask? And he said, well, my son came home, and ever since Sunday, he's had a bikini hanging on the end of his bed. 
Some of you will get that later. Notice that we're not told what she looks like. It, it doesn't matter. She's beautiful. She's the one for him. Sometimes I say, it's not that I like brunettes. It's I like a brunette. Okay, She's my other half. I read one commentator. He said, you know, God explained the universe to Adam to whatever degree. And then while Adam's asleep, he explains man to Eve. I think he may have come, we don't know, but maybe he comes, hey, before, we, before we wake him up, let me tell you a few things about this guy. He's been single for a while. He's used to having his own way. Well, in Genesis 2.23, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice the reaction. These are the first words spoken by man, the first words recorded in Scripture from man. And in what it sounds like from, from Adam's words, it sounds like a reunion. I mean, it sounds like, oh, there you are. There you are. I didn't know what I was looking for. But there you are. One more note about this, and that is that nothing in this account is said about children. The wife is valued alone. You see, marriage is grounded in a covenant. A covenant between a man and a, and a woman, and I'll show you that, that God is a part of that covenant. It's a threefold covenant. And there's nothing in there about the kids. The, the, the marriage covenant is not for the kids. You know, I would say this, that if you're in an arrangement in your marriage where you think things like, or you... Maybe you've even said it out loud. You know what? We're just going to stay together for the kids. I'd say this. It's, it's pastorally, I would say this. Time for some help. Time to, to talk to somebody, to, to your pastor, your, an elder. Your, open up to your small group because there is so much more to God's design for marriage than staying together for in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is the result. That they, maybe you've heard it, leave and, and cleave. They, they leave. There's a change of priorities, a shift of obligations. No longer are you now a consumer of your parents. No longer are you mothered. No longer are you fathered. You're now united. So the right response of a child to a parent is independence. The right response of a spouse is allegiance. That's what it means to cleave, to hold fast like glue. And then it says they're one flesh. It's a sexual union, but it's more than that. It's, it's a physically uniting of emotion and, and, and spirit and soul and interests and pursuits. And, and that's why it's exclusive. And that's why it's without reservation. That's why they would be declared in verse 25 naked and not ashamed. Listen, this is not a man-made institution. 
Marriage is designed by God. He's the architect. He's the catalyst. He's the designer. Marriage is by him, and marriage is for him. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, the prophet says this. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? The union is for the glory of God. It's the pinnacle of creation. In fact, the summary of the entire creation narrative, beginning in Genesis 1, all the way to Genesis 2, the entire summary is that and the man and his wife, in verse 25, were both naked and were not ashamed. That sums up all that creation was leading to. Elaine Stedman, she's the wife of the old preacher, Ray Stedman. She said it this way, they were both naked and were not ashamed. They both had self-awareness and other awareness without self-centeredness. The crux of their commitment was God himself. And the pristine beauty of that threefold relationship, they were secure, unthreatened, and unthreatening. Having studied neither Freud nor Skinner, they knew who they were and why they were there. A transparent, open, and guileless relationship was a result of their submission. The God's loving authority under which they were totally free to be fully human. God's design for marriage. Well, here's the reality. You know what happens right after Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 3. I went to seminary to learn that. And actually, the rest of the Bible is working out the ramifications of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. It begins, Genesis chapter 3 is the, is the fall of mankind into sin. It begins with a failure to trust God. And then what happens is, then it moves from a failure to trust God to then it becomes a failure to protect one another. They, they failed to fulfill the design. They, they traded what God had designed them for in the pursuit, for the pursuit of personal interests and desires and temptations. They, they turned on each other. They moved from one flesh to against flesh. They moved from uh, one another to against one another. They didn't take personal responsibility for the failing. God, Adam says, well, it was the woman you gave me. Eve says, well, it was the serpent on the ground. You see, sin entered the world. And sin entered marriage. I mean, what broke marriage? Sin. I mean, everything else is a symptom. Sex is not the problem. Communication is not the problem. Money is not the problem. In-laws are not the problem most of the time. And so if sin broke marriage, what can heal marriage? Well, only Christ. Sex is not the answer. Strategy is not the answer. I'm all for strategy. Strategy is great. It's not the answer to fix a broken marriage. It's not education. It's only Christ, only Christ can heal a marriage. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes in Ephesians, it's the longest exposition on marriage. And he has spent the first three chapters, four chapters, talking about who you are in Christ and all that God has done from before the foundations of time to, to the place of knowing Him, to, to be reconciled to Him, to, to be loved and washed clean in His Son Jesus. And it's only in that, then, 
Is he able to address marriage? And he talks about giving yourself to one another, sacrificing for one another. Chip Ingram said it this way, love is choosing to give another what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost to me. You get a chance to do that every day in marriage. Dan Allender said it this way, marriage requires radical commitment to love our spouses as they are, while longing for them to become what they are not yet, and every marriage moves toward either enhancing one another's glory or toward degrading each other. It's only two directions. I remember when I was, um, I was a lot younger. It was over 10 years ago, and I was at a church that was much older. I was in Wichita, Kansas. And... Um, I taught at, in Wichita, I taught this uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And the folks that came to the Wednesday night Bible study were not you folks. They weren't young families with kids. They were, they were couples that every one of them had been married either 40 years or 45 years or 50 years. I had a couple in there that had been married 60 years. And this 10 to 12 to 18 couples, they would come every Wednesday night, rain or shine or snow or ice or whatever it was, and we just walked through the Bible together. So we'd pick a book of the Bible, I'd teach through it. At the end of that book, I'd say, hey, what do you guys want to study next? And they would tell me, and so we'd, we'd, we'd journey on that together. Well, one of those nights, we just finished the study, and I had to ask him, I said, well, what do you guys want to study next? And Henry Egley, he was a man uh, in his late 80s, and he'd been married to Naomi for 60 years. That's, that's all right. We can wait. It's no big deal. I'm sorry, Karen. Um, so Henry Egley, well into his 80s, married to Naomi for, for 60 years. 60 years with this woman. Only person on the planet could live with her, I promise you. I knew her. 60 years to Naomi. And Henry says, you know what? I've been in the church all my life, and I've never heard anybody teach the Song of Solomon. Would you, could we do that next? And I said, Henry, you know what the Song of Solomon's about, right? Well, I'm not dead. And if you could have seen Naomi's face at that moment, that would, it was priceless. I said, all right, I will. So I I would show up and I would, the next several weeks, eight or nine weeks, I would teach Song of Solomon. There'd be times in the, in the teaching, I'd get there and I'd be like, look, I'm not, not only am I not going to read these next three verses, I'm sure not going to talk about these next three verses. You can go home and figure it out yourself, but I'm not talking about it with you, all right? But I remember it was somewhere along the, the study, Henry made this great observation. And I've, looked, I've studied it several times since then, and not everybody sees it this way, but I'll, but I'll tell you, this is a fantastic observation that he made. There's a refrain that goes through the Song of Solomon, and, and you probably know the refrain. Maybe it was read at your wedding, and maybe it's engraved in, 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 the, in the inside of your wedding ring. Um, but, but the first time that the phrase appears, it appears like this. It's in Song of Solomon 2, verse 16. It says this, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. 
Well, the, the phrase will show up again in Song of Solomon chapter 6, but there's a little variation to it. It's the same phrase, but it's, it's worded a little bit differently. The word order changes. It says it this way in 6.3. It says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And then the final time it shows up, it shows up abbreviated in chapter 7. And it just says this, I am my beloved's, and his desires for me. And Henry made the observation, he said, you know, in, in, in chapter 2, my beloved is mine. That's where it begins. My beloved is mine, 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 and I, and I am his. The next time, the order is reversed, and it says, not, not that my beloved is mine, but it begins with, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. And then the final time it appears, it just simply says, I am my beloved's. And Henry says, you know, it moves from self-focus, this, this my beloved is mine, to this mutual focus of I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, to finally it matures to a place of being other-focused. I am my beloved's. You know, that's the trajectory that we move in marriage, from self-focused to other-focused. The solution is not a system, it's a a savior. The only way that we can come to that place is that we've been saved. The only way we can come to that place is that we've known the forgiveness that Mark talked about week one, that we've known what it is to be forgiven. And then able to look and say, you know what, I, I forgive you. Why Paul will end this exposition on marriage. Listen to these last couple of verses. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. He pulls that right out of Genesis chapter 2. And he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. One writer said it this way, How could anything so fragile and frail and fickle as marriage represents something so holy and faithful and perfect as Christ's love. Knowing how stained and ruined it would become, and yet how beautiful Christ would look in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our marriages, as a Redeemer. How beautiful the gospel of grace will be. Let me take a few minutes and address disappointment in marriage. What about when marriage is disappointing? What about the days or the weeks or the months or the seasons that marriage is disappointing? Well, I think this, one of the reasons is that most people approach marriage by default. Marriage by accident rather than marriage on purpose. One of the ways we do that is we come into marriage with, this, with personal history. We come into marriage with family history. I mean, maybe you grew up uh, around a marriage that was really great. And you said, you know what? I, my marriage is going to be just like that. That's what I want my marriage to be, just like that. Maybe you grew up around a terrible marriage. You found yourself saying at some point, you know what? My marriage is never going to be like that. 
And yet here you are, all grown up and married. And sometimes your marriage doesn't look anything like this. And looks a lot more like this. You know, those expectations, the unrealistic expectations that are always unmet. You know, here's the reality. We come into marriage and somehow we think or somehow we, we can, you know, my, my, my spouse will meet all my needs. Or at least the most important ones, the, the ones that really matter, my spouse is going to meet. You know, I, I'm going to rant here for just a second. There's, um, th- there's a thing, a phenomenon going on uh, in our Christian circles right now. And, and so my aim is not at the people who write this. My, my aim is really at what we do with it as a Christian community. And the only way that I can talk about it is I call them mommy blogs. You know what I'm talking about? And they're the blogs that are written by these Women, young women, usually young women with young children. And the pictures they take are always perfect. And their children always look perfect. And their husband always look perfect. And even when they have a really hard time or you know, something bad happens, they, they write about it in their blog and, and they process it well. I mean, they, they process it perfectly. They, they use the gift of writing they have to talk through, this is how I felt, and this is what I did wrong, and this is how we came together, and this is how we resolved it, and there's always the silver lining over every dark cloud. And yet, as you read this, as you read this, as I read this, you think, well, you know what, that's not how it happens in my marriage. That's not how it happens in the, in the confines of my home. That, that's not how, there are no silver linings like that. Not only that, my husband doesn't look near that good with his shirt tucked in. I keep telling Leslie, my wife, I said, you need to write a blog, and the first post needs to be fat guy in the blue chair. And that's me. I have this blue chair that sits by our bed, and that's where I sit at night and have a little light on by my bed, and I I read or watch Netflix or tinker with a sermon, and you know, she'd be like, turn off the light, you know, and turn the light off. That's what you need to do. You need to take that picture and write that blog. Fat guy in the blue chair, and I love him, and I have no reason to at all. That ought to be it. It's more insidious than that. There are romantic comedies, there's fantasy novels, there's pornography consumed by both men and women, and the reality is it continues to create and heap upon expectations in marriage. Let me just tell you this. This is a little secret. Expectations do not make a marriage work. It is not the change of your expectations. Expectations, period, Do not make a marriage work. I mean, there is something wonderful in your marriage. There's something to be shared and cherished. And and yet so oftentimes, that thing that is to be shared and cherished and, and, and loved and embraced is buried under the ashes of disappointment from unmet expectations. Most people marry for earthly benefits. That's okay. It's what attracts you. But you were entrusted with cosmic, eternal responsibilities. Well, another thing is there's competing loyalties. Some of us haven't left home. Some of some of you haven't left home. You you haven't left home. Maybe the care and the advice and the nurturing of your parents, you haven't left that yet. 
Or maybe you came into marriage and, and there's a bitterness that you have, a bitterness towards a dad or a bitterness towards a mom or, or a bitterness towards some great disappointment. And you think, you know what, I'm going to come into marriage, I'll get married. It'll just, it'll just cover over that bitterness. It'll fix it. Let me tell you something. If you come into marriage with bitterness, let me tell you what it'll do to your marriage. It'll make your marriage better. It will poison it from day one. Time to leave home. Things that will also bury marriages is loyalty to kids. Listen, kids are great. I love them. I have three of them. Love them all. But marriage is the most permanent of all human relationships. Children pass through your family. They pass through your marriage. Parenting is temporary. Marriage is permanent. The greatest investment needs to be in your marriage. Loyalty to work, loyalty to self. And the last one I want to talk about is that when we have marriages that are grounded in the law and not covered with grace, what happens is we begin to seek changes through demands. We seek changes through guilt. We, we seek changes for ourselves, for our benefit. Listen, if there is any place that I am qualified to speak, it is absolutely here. For Years, I'd spent almost ruining my marriage with my laws and my demands and my guilt. I remember it was year seven in our marriage. And it's my last year in seminary in Dallas. And um, it, was a, it was a very difficult year for us. And I remember we went to the Atlanta Bread Company, Leslie and I, and we sat there with two little kids, and we'd left them with somebody, and we went and sat at the Atlanta Bread Company over a cup of coffee, and I remember saying to her, you know, something has to change here. And by something, I meant her. Or this thing's not going to work. I said, we need to find you a counselor. That's what I said. So we did, and um, I went first time and uh, sat down with the counselor. There we are. And after we got through all the hellos and the niceties and all that stuff, I took the opportunity to inform the counselor of my resume. I said, let me, let me just tell you, I'm, I've got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and been in private practice and Back now, I'm about to graduate from the Dallas Theological Seminary, and I just want you to know, any way that I can help you with her, <laughs> I'm happy to. I, I said that. I'm embarrassed about it. Because the next nine months, you know what he did? He left her alone, and he unraveled me. And for the first time in our marriage, breathed grace into it. For the first time in our marriage, he, he helped us cover it with the gospel. He's changed everything. Ernest Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, wrote it in the early 70s. Listen to what he says. That the failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustration 
No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize him or her, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We, we want to rid ourselves of our faults, of, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners cannot give us this. Let me address one last thing quickly and then we'll close, I promise. Let me say this. What if it never gets better? Let me ask you that. But what if your marriage never gets better? Are you still in on this deal. I mean, is your, is your faith, I mean, is your faith in the hope of a better marriage? Or is your faith in the hope of a Savior who's seated at the right hand of the Father and as the trumpet sounds, will come for you and glory begins? What is your faith in? And what if your marriage never gets better? Will you still trust Him? Will you? There's a great story in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There they are. They stand before Nebuchadnezzar. He says, bow to me or I'm going to throw you into the fire. They say, look, we can't bow to you. And you can throw us into the fire or not. If you throw us into the fire, if we live, praise the Lord. If we die, praise the Lord. Either way, praise the Lord. We trust Him. You know, the thing about that story is it ends with a happy ending. But what if yours doesn't? What if you get burned by the fire? What if you get consumed by it? Will you still trust him? You know, we could talk about Leah if we had time. She's the older sister of Rachel, the one who married Jacob. Leah, the girl nobody wanted. Her father didn't want her. Jacob didn't want her. She spent her life. You know what the text says about her? She was unloved her whole life. And she tried everything to win Jacob's affection. And I have to think there's the moment when she is face to face with God. And he says, Leah, you were never unloved. I loved you every second of your life. And in fact, from you, from your womb came Judah. And from Judah will come the one who is the Lion of Judah, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the one who's going to rescue all of mankind, including you, Leah. I loved you. I never stopped loving you. We trust him. Or Habakkuk, not about marriage, but Habakkuk who comes to God in his deep despair and he says, God, I don't understand this. You've made these promises to Israel. And yet Assyria's come and they've wiped out the northern kingdom and Babylon's come and they've wiped out the southern kingdom. And God, it looks like you have forgotten us. To which God says to Habakkuk, oh, Habakkuk, I haven't forgotten you. I promise I'd never leave you. I'd never forsake you. And what you don't understand in this life doesn't mean that I am unfaithful. I have never stopped being yours. You have never for one minute stopped being mine. 
to which after Habakkuk's encounter with God, he writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. I'll trust him. I'll conclude with this. While marriage is designed by God, and it answers the problem of aloneness in this life, with the answer is community. And in marriage is for the glory of God. Marriage is not the answer. Not the final answer. To the eternal longing and desire that we all feel. Eternity has been said in our hearts, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Listen, if you seek marriage as the solution to the eternal ache and longing that you have, you'll elevate marriage to a place it was never meant to be. A place where it cannot survive. There's not enough oxygen to survive. You have a longing and a desire and this eternal ache. And the truth is it won't be satisfied in this life. It's an eternal desire that can't be satisfied in the temporary. A desire so great, so deep, so powerful that only eternity can satisfy. C.S. Lewis wrote this book, A Problem of Pain. Many years ago, he addresses this. This is what he says. He says, you may have noticed that the books you really love are bound together by a secret thread. You know very well what is the common quality that makes you love them, though you cannot put it into words, and most of your friends don't see it at all. He says, we cannot tell each other about it. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable, the unappeasable want, the, the thing we've desired before, from before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we'll still desire even on our deathbeds when our mind no longer knows wife or friend or work, while we are, this is. But blessed are you, O happy creature, for you have been saved. And there will be the day that your eyes shall behold him and no other. And all of that you are, apart from your sins, is destined to stand and enjoy God's good way in utter satisfaction. God will look to every soul like his or her first love because he is your first love. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. You were made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. And all your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. But the day is coming when you will awake to find beyond all hope that you have attained. If you would, would you bow with me and let us pray. Father, we thank you for 
the preservation of your word. We thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for the grace that is evident even in the very first account of humanity. Father, we thank you that you're the one that designed marriage. You created it. We didn't make this up on our own. It's yours. And Father, we thank you that even though sin has stained it, even though sin has come into the world, it has caused us to fall from your glory. It has caused creation to ache and groan and long for the day of redemption. Even though sin has come, And stained and marred marriage the way that it has. Father, you sent your son, Jesus, as our redeemer. And you used the marriage language to talk about Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And that, Father, in that breathing life into us, that we know that of all the things that can heal marriage, it is your son. And your son alone. Father, it is not our expectations. It's not our systems. It's not our. It's not our warring against each other. Father, it is your son, Jesus. We thank you for the grace that we've been shown by him. And Father, I pray. I pray that it would infuse these marriages here today. Between a man and a woman, united by your spirit. That, Father, you are with us. You've promised that you never leave us, you never forsake us. As Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the age. Father, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Us, convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, for all of us, draw us closer to your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, the name of Jesus, the only way we can pray, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.